Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the writers of papers that have interested us and see if we can learn a little more about their background. Our interviewee today is Dr. Ayo Matsuda, Associate Professor from the Department of English at Arizona State University. Good day. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's very nice to speak to you. As I mentioned in the email that I sent you, yours is work that I cite in almost every one of my papers, and it's something that inspired me to get into the area of world Englishes. Oh, (laughs) thank you. The paper we're going to be speaking about today is English as an International Language, a Curriculum Blueprint, which you wrote in 2011 with Patricia Mm -hmm. Friedrich. But Mm -hmm. before we begin, could we have a little background to yourself and how you became interested in this topic? Sure, of course. Um, How far should I go back? (laughs) As as far as you'd like. (laughs) Okay, so... um, I'll keep the early part very brief and then get into a little more details as we get closer to that publication. Um, I'm originally from Japan, uh, from Tokyo area. Um, I first came to the United States when I was in high school, late 80s, and um, high school exchange programs were really popular. So um, I came to Wisconsin and lived with a dairy farming family for two years. Um, after that, I started college here and then went back to Japan to finish. I came back to the States again to um, work on my graduate studies, and um, I've lived in the U.S. since then. Um, when I first came to the States as a grad, when I came back as a graduate student, um, my plan was to get a master's degree in TESOL and go back to Japan and teach English. Um in middle school, that's, that was the age group I wanted to work with. But things happened and, um, I decided to stay here for a PhD. And that's where, um, I was introduced the idea of world Englishes. Um, I found it fascinating and I decided to, I decided I wanted to pursue it further for dissertation and beyond. But, um, you know, as I said, my original goal was to teach English and I didn't quite know how to bring them together. Um, because at that time, my idea of English te- language teaching was that, um, the goal is to become, to learn to speak English just like native speakers and therefore native speakers English should serve as a measuring stick. And I had this view of English that, sure, it's possible to pick just one correct variety of English and pretend that that's what everyone speaks. Uh, world English, the idea of world English just really messes that up. Um, and I didn't know how to bring them together. So in my dissertation, I didn't really look at that. But that was um, how to bring those two things together was something that I was really interested in figuring out. So I kept thinking about it after I got my PhD. And um, I started publishing about it, like bits and pieces in maybe 2002, 2003, around that time. So this piece that we're going to first focus on is sort of like the build on some of the thinking that I was doing earlier, and it also led to further work. If well, that makes sense. It does. And speaking of earlier work, uh, as I said, the, the paper that we're going to be speaking about is English as an International Language, a Curriculum Blueprint, which does 
seek to, as you say, operationalize World Englishes as something that is practicable in a classroom. But mm-hmm. the um, the paper that first got me interested in your work was from 2003. And the one of the things I used to do when I was giving presentations, and, and sometimes still do, is instead of just having the opening PowerPoint screen be my name and the title, I would put a quote to give the people who, when they're coming into the room, um, something to think about before I started speaking. And the quote I used to use was from your 2003 paper, World English, oh. um, which was promoting the pluralistic view of English and encouraging students to see their roles and responsibilities in shaping English as an international language are not a matter of political correctness. So hmm. clearly, at the beginning of this cycle of work, you were trying mm-hmm. to get people to think more basically about it isn't just that people should do it because it's a nice thing to do. It's it's mm-hmm. an important thing for people to do. Mm-hmm. Could you give a little more background how you reached that conclusion? Um, that's a really good question. But I I still think that way. So maybe I can start from ask myself why I think that. I think when I first started sharing some of the ideas, which I now call teaching English as an international language, some people, some of the reactions were like, oh, so this is about being politically correct, or Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you're, you're a nice person, so you don't want to offend anyone by saying your English is wrong. Um, And I felt like some people responded well, but only because they saw some parallelism or compatibility between what they thought I was promoting through these ideas and their um, way of thinking or ideology uh, that really embraces diversity and uh, promotes respect for differences, etc., and yes, those are great values. I share that as well. And I can see the compatibility too. But I came in from more pragmatic, practical perspective, which is that, for example, in Japan, Ministry of Education or many um, private language schools promote English saying that you have to know English because it's a global language. Or, um, you know, if you know English, it opens English is the key to the the um, new world, and you can access this new international global resources that you cannot access without English. But yet, once you go into the classroom, at least when I started talking about this, the focus was almost exclusively on United States, American English, or British UK English. But if these students learn English and if they really go out to international world, that would include more than US and UK. And they might go out there and th- think, Oh, what is happening? I've never heard of these different kinds of Englishes and I'm not ready to talk to these people. Then I thought that there's a disconnect between the way we are selling the language and the way we are preparing our learners and we are doing disservice to our learners by not exposing them to the whole set of the reality of English speaking world. Um, so I came from 
that perspective. So I was really surprised by sort of like how some people politicize this approach to English language teaching. And I think that surprise led to the quote you just mentioned. I actually wrote a piece, as you probably know, recently in the RELC journal, mm-hmm. which specifically focused on that gap between how people think of Teal as a politically correct thing or not. I think it, it leads directly into the point that you make in the in the 2011 paper that I think if you don't investigate sociolinguistics, and if it's not your area, then you people don't quite understand the difference between English as an international language existing as a form or as a function. And as mm-hmm, you point out mm-hmm. in, in your paper, and I, I believe that this is how you've gone forward with your work, that English as an international language is the function of the language in the real world. It's not necessarily a form mm-hmm. that can be taught or necessarily that's, identified as being different. Is that is that correct? That That's correct. Yeah, I think I came in with with an assumption, and I still share that assumption, when we take a situation um, which we might call international or global communication, people just bring in whatever the language resources they happen to have. Um, and therefore, in terms of linguistic varieties, there are probably different kinds of English coexisting or being present in one conversation or one dialogue or one text. Well, to, to um, give so a it, direct example yeah. uh, from a paper that we're discussing, mm-hmm. you you give the example of, for instance, if a Chilean, an Indian, and an American attend a business meeting in Hong Kong, each participant mm-hmm. might use a variety of English that they were most fluent in, for example, Chilean English, Indian English, and American English, uh, respectively. But there would be no reason why the user of American English would be privileged in that situation. Right. Yeah, that's, um, yes, that's the view I'm bringing in. And I'm, of course, I, I'm fully aware and I do expect some sort of negotiation among those particular people, even in one short conversation. And if it's a sustained conversation, a new norm, um, that works for these people, um, may eventually emerge. Um, but, um, it's not, it's not, so, and, I think people who are um, used to inter uh, using English for both domestic and international communication know how to adjust their language and communication styles depending on the audience. Mm. Um, so there might be a little bit of that, but that's more at the communication strategy level um, than switching completely from one variety of English to an international variety. I think that's something, again, that if if you don't use this uh, language in an in international context, for example, if you're not mm-hmm. a language teacher uh, overseas, mm-hmm. you don't see the distinction between what is the language uh, as the grammars, the vocabulary, and the you know, pronunciation cues versus mm-hmm. how to actually achieve a communication goal, how to mm-hmm. communicate mm-hmm and negotiate your way towards achieving what you aimed to do in the language. Mm-hmm. The, the, the person who, and you quote him uh, in the paper, uh, Kanagaraja was someone who mm-hmm. talked about this in the, the, the book of Resisting Linguistic Imperialism yeah. uh, informed mm-hmm. my, my PhD work as well. And oh, okay. the quote that you have is that 
it's difficult to describe this language a priori. So you mm -hmm. can't go into any interaction knowing exactly what you're going to say. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You need to be, as you say, able to negotiate your way towards uh, the goal that you've decided. Right. And I think, um, I can't remember if I got into this in 2011 article, but one of the things that I've been thinking is that people often assume that if it's an international communication, English will be used. Mm. And I think that's very, that happens often, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Right. If there, if there's another language that everyone happens to know, there's nothing wrong with using that language. So I, I, I always want to make that point and, um, you know, challenge people when they seem to assume that English will be used because that's, that seems almost arrogant for those of us who are native speakers of English or who are fluent in English to assume that that's going to be the language because maybe because it's convenient for us. Um, so I want to like push that boundary a little bit as well. And the work that I do is generally in the area of uh, linguistic modeling. And I was, again, drawn to the paper that we're discussing okay. based on your your note about Tom MacArthur and the 1987 model, the wheel model that he produced that mm. at the center had yes. what was termed world standard English as what looked like a placeholder, but it was undefined. Mm. What did you think about that? And do you think that MacArthur was, was heading in the direction of a form of English that could be world standard? I view it as simply a placeholder that forms the center of his mm -hmm. model. But do you have any thoughts on that? When um, when I was first exposed to the idea, I was very attracted to it because isn't it nice if there was such a variety, <laughs> you know? Right. From language te English teacher's perspective, we can tell our students that forget American English, forget British English, but if you learn this variety you can communicate with anyone in the world. Right. Um, but I don't think that really reflects the reality. I have a question, but based on yeah, uh, sure. your, your perspectives and also on, on my work, the, uh -huh, idea, yeah. the idea of there being a world standard English, the main question that I have is, do we need one? Because by the time you oh. get to the ability to negotiate your communication and use communication mm -hmm. strategies, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think you're really aiming towards any particular standard. Your standard is communication competence. So if even if you're saying you're aiming towards a British or an American standard mm -hmm. at the very beginning when you start with ABC with you know seven mm -hmm. or eight-year-old students in the class, by the time they've mm -hmm. progressed to the, the level of communicative competence, mm -hmm. it, there's not really a target they're aiming for above you know, general proficiency. Let's see. How do I feel about that? I tend to think that, okay, what you just said sounds really good, but um, <laughs> I also tend to think, and I'm not sure if I'm agreeing with you or disagreeing with you, actually, okay. but let me just think as I talk. So I tend to think of expected goal or expected proficiency as something that's very context-dependent. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples I often use is, you know, if you, if I'm just help, helping my aunt, if I'm teaching my aunt some English because she decided to, um, 
you know, use her, use the money that she saved up and go to Switzerland, um, you know that it's a pretty popular destination for Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And she just wants to be able to, you know, order things at restaurants and buy train tickets and things like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then she needs certain kind of English. Um, but that, what she needs would be very different from another client that I might be working with who needs to work as a spy mm-hmm. for U.S. government. And the person is not a native speaker of English, but she needs to be able to pass as someone who's from the States, maybe from Wisconsin, you know, all these alternative identity that might be assigned to spy. Okay, I don't know if that's how spinach works, but, you know, based on the movies that I saw. <laughs> um, but um, the kind of English this person needs would be very different. Right. So I... I Therefore, it's very goal-dependent. Right. So I, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that as long as people understand you, it's fine if you don't sound like native speakers. There might be a situation where you need to, or you may prefer to sound like a native speaker. And I understand I probably want to critique that such a society where you get judged based on how you sound. But I think that's a sociolinguistic reality of any language in any society. And I can understand that depending on the goal, that's the direction you want to strive for. Where was I going with this? Oh, but I, I don't... And probably because I think of these goals as uh, contextually defined things, I don't think that there will be one variety that would work in all and any situation. Right. Um, that's that's another reason that I'm skeptical of the idea of one international standard or international variety of English. You know, to think that there is one or that it's worthwhile to try to create one. And it's probably not very mm, desirable to try to create one because then, of course, the question, some people's English will be privileged than others in the process and it will create another hierarchy, which I don't think very productive. Well, that goes towards some of the, as I said, my, my work is mainly in linguistic modeling. And yeah. one of the models that we talk about is uh, the 2009 model by Park and Wee, the the market mm-hmm. theoretic mm-hmm. model that okay. kind of that modeled language use exactly as you say on context, and that mm. a variety would be judged more highly in a, in a certain context, but less so in in other contexts. So American English right. would be privileged if you were, as you say, attempting to be a spy in Wisconsin. But mm-hmm. it wouldn't be very helpful if you were trying to buy something from a fish market in in Kowloon. So, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, the value, the relative values of varieties of English rise and fall, much like a stock market, based on the context. Yeah. Can you? Can you? Whose work? Whose model is this? Can uh, you? That's, that's I don't think I'm familiar with it. It's, yeah. It's Park I and Wee, two thousand nine. Uh, the mar- uh, a market theoretical. Oh, approach. okay. All right. But that leads me into my next question. Uh, you cite the work of Hino mm-hmm. talking about the, the need for uh, what you term are based criteria 
to de-anglicize the teaching of English in places like Japan. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what kind of criteria would you put into a language course that would form a de-anglicized model of the language for teaching? Okay, did I, did I say that? <laughs> I have to go back and reread it. Um, I know I cite uh, Hino-sensei's work a lot. I, I respect mm. his work very much. And he, he talks about the anglicization of English. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, give, you the, I'll give you the quote and uh, probably a little bit more yeah, time to think about it. Yeah, do you have the page number? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's on page 336 where you said, Hino raises a good point regarding the appropriateness of based criteria for evaluating the legitimacy of Englishes in the expanding circle, which clearly needs to be examined critically from the ex- uh, expanding circle perspective. Uh, to give some of our listeners who are not who don't know about what the expanding circle is, uh, in yes, 1985, Professor Braj Khatru introduced a, the three circles model, which had an inner circle, an outer circle, and an expanding circle, which basically linked to the historical roots of English in, in different locations. So the inner circle would be places where English is used as a, as a first language traditionally, so places like the UK, the US, Australia. Expanding circle related to places that were essentially ex-colonies of uh, any of these places, mostly from the British Empire, like India or Sri Lanka. And then the expanding circle was everybody else. So in this point, Hino is basically saying you can't evaluate the legitimacy of a, of an English from outside of the inner or outer circle from uh, without thinking about the in that context. So in the in the and Hino Sensei, as as you mentioned, writes exclusively mm-hmm. uh, when they're talk when he's talking about Englishes from the perspective of Japan. So. Mm-hmm. How would you add to this point to it to explain what kind of criteria we might need to judge the legitimacy of something like a, a Japanese English? Wow, that's a good question. I and I'll be honest with you. I don't. I'm not sure what we had in mind when we wrote this. Um, <laughs> but one thing I remember is that um, he talks a lot about the capacity or the capacity of English like can English or version whatever the version of English that we are looking at mm-hmm. is it adequate enough for Japanese people to express everything they want to say um, and we're not talking about Japanese learners of English can't express them fully because they don't know enough English but um, things like this typical Set of vocabulary in American English, for example, is it enough to um, represent some values that are specific or to Japan or different from the states? Mm-hmm. One example I remember him using is um, expression "brother" versus "ani" and "ototo," big brother, older brother, and younger brother, mm-hmm. and how he talked about in Japanese society older brother and younger brother are very different in terms of the relationship to you as well as their family obligations, social obligations, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So Japanese has different words for older brother and younger brother, mm-hmm. while in American English, at least, we just use the word brother mm. Unless we want to specify for some reason one is older and one is younger, in many contexts it doesn't matter. So he was saying that, and I think he was critiquing practices where when Japanese learners of English 
use um, words like elder brother or younger brother in context where age doesn't seem so relevant mm. to American audience. It is often marked as incorrect or unnatural. But his argument is that perhaps we can think of it this way, which is that in Japanese variety of English, it's natural and perhaps necessary to make that distinction if Japanese people want to fully express their view of the world through English. Um, given, given that English has very long tradition of borrowing from other languages to improve the, the richness of it and make it more contextually available to the users. Do you think there's a possibility if Japanese English is to be accepted as a variety that exists um, and is identifiable, the taking on of, of words, of context-specific words like ani and ototo, but use them in within English, do you think that's a, a future form of what might of what Japanese English might be? Um, I think that's a possibility. Um, another possibility I can think of is those um, Japanese-made English words like sarariman. Mm -hmm. It's often, uh, now the way those words are often talked about is something like, did you know that they're not correct English words? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by that, what people mean is that native speakers at least from U.S. and U.K., wouldn't use those terms. That right. word is not part of their vocabulary. But um, if we take Japanese-English perspective, we might say it's it's part of Japanese-English vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Americans want to borrow it, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too. But it is a legitimate part of Japanese variety of English. And it's true. It's really hard to replace that word with um, another English expression or Japanese expression even. Well, I agree um, with you that uh, it's it's a way into the language when mm -hmm. you when someone uses it, when you uses uh, these words. Again, people who are listening who haven't lived in Japan or, or don't know about Japanese use of English, there's several uh, writing scripts in Japanese, one of which is katakana, and katakana tends to be where languages, uh, other languages is borrowed. I mean, one of the examples is that Japanese people don't always know that the, Brit that the British English or the American English word for bread is not pan. That comes from mm -hmm. Portuguese. But it's it's brought in through this use of katakana. So salaryman, as you say, is usually like a someone who has an office job, uh, mm -hmm. a man with a salary, but that gets put together as, a, as, as the word salaryman. And it is a way into discussing differences between the languages. To move the conversation on a little bit, but but to keep on that topic, do you think sure. that teaching the language as using things like salaryman and these these expressions, mm -hmm. teaching the language by showing the differences between different varieties is an effective way of of teaching? Do you think that's something that should be part of a, a curriculum? Yes, I think so. I think it can be used in many different ways. I think it's a great attention getter. Um, but also, my approach tends to be um, not to say this is incorrect English, but mm -hmm. I would point out the fact that it is not the word used in American English, British English, and 
probably most other varieties of English spoken in the world today.、Mm. So, as someone who has that word as part of their vocabulary, we have at least two choices. One is to avoid that word in order to avoid misunderstanding, and try to describe the same thing using another expression.、Um, another approach is to use that term. But to know how to explain it,、right. like I've noticed that you do a really good job as a host of this interview、uh, program. That like whenever you you say something, you clarify it, or you you put like parenthetical definition of it、um, as you talk for your audience who may or may not know that concept, right?、Mm-hmm. So I think that. That's one communicative strategy that、um, that exists, and some people are better at using it than others. But anyone who's going to engage in communication, but especially international communication, I think that's a skill that's really important. And if you want to use the word "salary man," then expect people to look confused and be ready to stop and say, you know, that's the expression we use for this kind of people,、right. and then go on.、Um, I think teaching that type of strategy,、um, and if students are, you know, have enough awareness and they're older and aware of, you know, have some sociolinguistic awareness, it, it'll be really fun to talk about the consequence of using those words and things like that. But I I think it, one number one it is I would see it as my job to let students know that it's not the word that everyone uses, and two to show them different ways to deal with that. Avoidance is one, you know. Paraphrasing is another,、um, and there might be other strategies too. Well, I think you bring up a really good point,、uh, particularly in the Japanese context, and we've discussed it before on this program. About the Japanese tendency when trying to say something for the first time is to try and say it as correctly as possible, but、mm-hmm. if it doesn't go across, there is a tendency to stop and believe that it was、uh, the, the their fault as the speaker for not achieving the goal in communication. Whereas,、mm-hmm. as you say, one of the most important things is if you you see that there is some confusion based on what you've said. Not to stop, but to go on and to、uh, keep speaking. So I think the the, the question I'm, I'm trying to get to is, from the Japanese context, do you think that it's more important than in other places to teach that what they've said is not necessarily wrong? It just hasn't come across, and try it a different way. I think that's an important thing to tra-、uh, thing. To teach, I'm not sure if it's unique to、um, Japanese learners of English.、Mm-hmm. Um, I work with many international students in the U.S. context,、mm. and students who are not confident about their English tend to act the same way. So when they say something and when that is not understood. They think it's their fault. Their their pronunciation、right. was not right. Their word choice was not correct. But at the same time, if they don't understand something that other students, especially native speakers, said, then they think again it's their fault. Their listening comprehension skill is not is not strong enough.、Mm. So I think it has a lot to do with 
English language learners self evaluation, how they perceive their proficiency and how competent they are. And um, that seemed to influence who they decide to blame when something goes wrong. Well, you, so I you, think that's something that all English language learners need to be equipped with. Right. And you, you do address that uh, directly in the paper. Again, the paper we're talking about is English as an International Language, a Curriculum Blueprint. And on page 337, you do note that this this context uh, is important. So you're quoting yeah. Smith and Nelson when you say, in such cases, we teachers would like our students to learn a variety that is intelligible to the widest audience possible. But even the notion of intelligibility does not narrow down the choice completely because how intelligent, <laughs> how intelligible a person is depends on the listeners as well. So right. making that available, that point accessible to our students, I think is something that teachers should do. It's not always you. It is very often you that is the reason the, com the conversation doesn't work. It's not always you, but it is it is your responsibility to keep going and to try and fix the the breakdown in communication uh, if you have a if you have a goal that you'd like to reach. If this conversation is important to you, if you want to keep the the dialogue going. Yeah, I agree, and um, I I also want to promote this idea that. When we try to communicate with someone, everyone who's part of that communication needs to work together. Hmm. So, yeah, often communication breaks down. We mishear something, misunderstand each other, and so forth. But the goal of communication or talking to other people is not to... um not to decide whose fault it is when something goes wrong, right? Right, right? Usually there's a bigger communicative goal and it doesn't really matter who, who made a mistake or who misunderstood. Um, so everyone do their, everyone does their best to understand each other, to be understood with each other, by each other, by, by other people. It's a collaborative work, not right. everyone doing their best by themselves. And hope that they will work to, you know, come out okay. Um, yeah, the, the word I use when I, I try and explain this when I'm, I'm giving a, a research presentation or to someone who's not uh, uh, who's not in the field is the word of in, mm -hmm. intention. If you have an intention, mm, yeah. then mm -hmm. you have a reason to keep the conversation going, even if it's breaking down in certain areas. If you can keep it moving forward, if you have an intention to complete a communicative mm -hmm. uh, action, then that mm -hmm. will be the energy that helps you to negotiate your way through these kind of communication breakdowns. Yeah, that's very true. And it's also helpful to have tools that mm -hmm. will allow you to carry out that intention. So I think that both intention and tools go hand in hand. Um, right. The, the reason um, I, I, I chose this paper, um, having looked at your, the entire body of work, uh, that you've put out mm -hmm. is that this paper came out in 2011 and mm -hmm. as as we know from uh, other publication activities i assume that this work was written in 2009 or 2010 submitted and then was published in 2011 would that sound about right probably something like that yeah yeah, yeah. i don't have the exact date but and your work since then has been in uh, in the area of books and curating volumes of people's work, trying to mm -hmm. follow this idea of a world English's curriculum. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, my my broader question, based on this, is uh, who or where do you think has come closest to adopting and implementing a World English's curriculum? Wow. Um, well, I oh, I I would like to think that there are many successful cases that is happening all over the world that I don't know about. <laughs> but the one I know um, very well is um, it's a self a Center for English as a Lingua Franca language program at Tamagawa University in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor Masaki Oda was the founding director of the program um, and um, he created um, a language program that really is based on this idea of world Englishes and English as a lingua franca. One way that really shows is his hiring practices. He has the job, their job description does not say anything about, about the candidate being a native speaker of English, but it really spelled out uh, language learning experience. If I remember correctly, they have to know three languages, not just two. And, you know, the type of teaching experience that they have had, teaching effectiveness and so forth. This program really managed to move away from native speaker based way of thinking about language teaching and teacher credential. Mm-hmm. And they managed to put together a strong language program that represents different varieties of English by hiring teacher, competent teachers from different backgrounds. So I really respect that program. And uh, whenever people ask for example of mm-hmm. a program that has implemented a lot of ideas that I've been advocating for, I refer people to that program. It's it's interesting to for you to point that out because Again, if, if you if you haven't worked or, or lived in Japan, then hiring practices do tend to, when you're looking for someone who's going to be teaching an English program, they do oftentimes prioritize so-called, as you say, so-called native speakers over people who are probably better qualified through their work rather than their heritage, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right. And... um Perhaps because of that, if you look at language programs at Japanese universities, they tend to have a group of native speakers of English from, you know, US, UK, maybe Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and a whole bunch of Japanese teachers of English. Mm-hmm. But English users from the rest of the world is completely absent mm. because they don't quite the fit, they don't quite fit in to this native speaker category and often lines are designated for Japanese versus non-Japanese so um, yeah that's that's one interesting thing about Tamago's university they have people from the Philippines and Malaysia and Korea and all these places that makes it very international and speaking of internationalization and to and to finish uh, our interview again thank you very much for joining us today Uh, you you might have a, a an interesting perspective being someone who has born in Japan, then went over to the U.S., studied, and now working there. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear your perspective on what internationalization means in the American perspective versus how it's often couched in the Japanese perspective. Oh, that is really good question. Um, 
And that's an interesting one too. So when I was a international, like quote to quote international student at the American University, we had these international students from all over the world and also the study abroad program for American students to go abroad and language and culture and so forth. At least at the university I attended, the study abroad experience was considered something that adds to international perspective and global mindset of American students. International students were, I don't think we were really perceived as resources for that purpose. Mm. We were like, these foreign students are here to learn at American University from Americans, and they're fine. You know, they're welcome here. They're interesting. But I don't think um, universities really saw it as an opportunity for American students to become, you know, to open their eyes toward the world through these international students. Hmm. Things, I think, are quite different now. International students are often perceived now as resources for internationalization because I think American society, at least in higher ed context, people are realizing the importance of global perspective, international perspective, mm-hmm. um, from very practical point of view too. You know, if you're a business major, you are more marketable if you had some international experience because many companies now are multinational. Mm-hmm. So, um, bringing international students and creating opportunities for American students to interact with them is considered as one way to prepare American students for a globalized world. Mm. Um, so I think, I don't know if international students' day-to-day lives are very different now, but when I pay attention to the way university administrations talk about international students in the U.S., I think they definitely see more value and benefits that way. You know? right. I mean, the, my, my work for my PhD was when I was working at Rutsume Kanajia Taiheu Daigaku, and the, the student population there is probably the most internationalized uh, of any university in Japan. 50% of the uh, students come from outside of uh, Japan, uh, and this is in a country okay. where the average is usually about 3 to 5%. Um, right. About, I think about 80 to 85% of the faculty are either from outside the country or receive their highest qualification from uh, outside of Japan. So it was this uh, unique situation. And, and I, I looked into how the international students were faring uh, with the Japanese students mm-hmm. through the use of English. And it's something that I've carried forward. My most recent project was looking at uh, the employment of international students at Japanese universities as teaching assistants and seeing oh, how okay. this was assisting them with their on-campus um, integration. Mm-hmm. So uh, my final question is... Do you think that, based on what's going on in the world right now, it might be a difficult time to uh, to give a, a clear answer to this, but do you think that higher education is moving towards a more internationalized model, or will it stay at a similar level? What do, what do you see uh, in the future, and the importance of English as a, as a mutual tool of intercultural communication? I think globalization is something that is promoted or mm, not necessarily promoted but talked about mm-hmm. at higher 
education, like universities, colleges, perhaps globally. I I must say I'm not familiar with situations in all countries or even many countries. My view is pretty limited to Asia and North America. So I hesitate a little bit to talk about other contexts as well. But I think globalization is something that many governments see as important um, because they see themselves as part of this globalized world, whether we are talking about politics or economy or um, whatnot. Um, so definitely, I think it will be part of the talk and how different universities market themselves how maybe grants are distributed and so forth. The, the globalization is going to be a big part. Um, I understand that some universities, many universities in Europe, for example, there's a strong push toward English medium instruction mm-hmm. because students in EU can freely move around and attend universities in other countries. Yes. Um, I think that happens a lot in um, Asia too. I know that some university in Japan have uh, colleges or programs within the university where all courses are offered in English. Um, so I think that is that is happening already. And if more people are interested in that, there is sort of like a greater motivation to learn English with perhaps a very clear, specific purpose, English for academic purpose to get higher ed level education. At the same time, though, I'm a little concerned if the direction is to push English as a minimum of instruction, that concerns me a little bit because I think it is a student's right to receive good quality education in their first language. Mm-hmm. And it comes to a situation where you have to know English to access good education, then that is going to create or reinforce a further socioeconomic divide in society. Because people who come from, um, you know, wealthier backgrounds tend to have better access to better English education. Um, Also, I think certain knowledge will be lost if knowledge making is not done in that language. So I would hope that university also pushes toward education and doing research in local languages other than English. And in academia, for example, value those research and publications as much as they value publication in English. I would agree with you there very much. You don't want to lose the the local knowledge. You don't want to lose the cultural knowledge that's embedded in all of languages and to prioritize English as the form of communication I think mm-hmm. would would do that uh, in the long term has done that and uh, and it's something that we should be aware of uh, but mm-hmm. if we focus on English as as you recommend as a as a function and as a tool then I think if we keep that as the goal of, of our curricula then we will uh, we will be able to protect local languages as well Mm-hmm. And I must admit, I am benefiting a lot 
from the fact or this reality where English is used as a common language, mm-hmm. because otherwise we wouldn't be talking to each other today. That's so right. um, yeah, I'm definitely uh, uh, receiving benefits from the system that I sometimes critique. And I think that's important uh, as academics. You, you acknowledge the advantages that you have. You investigate the disadvantages that other people may have, and you attempt to give everyone the equality of opportunity that gives people a chance to improve their their lives through education. As you note uh, in the paper we've been discussing, English is an international language, a curriculum blueprint. That the use of English as an international language has this capacity, but we should always be aware that it's 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 a tool that's not something that should supersede the student's own native language and we should respect that as well mm-hmm. i agree well i think that's a, that's a good place to end it on on agreement so thank you very much uh, <laughs> thank you very much uh, we've been speaking today with uh, dr ayamatsura from arizona state university uh, thank you very much for your time and i hope we have a chance to speak again in the future Yes, I hope so too. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Well, thank you very much for your time. If you'd like to contact the show, then you can do so at lostincitations at gmail.com. You can also like and rate and leave a comment at the places where you download your podcast from. We also have pages on Facebook and LinkedIn. But the most important way would be, if you do like the show, recommend it to a friend, a colleague, and see if they like the content that we're putting up online. Thank you very much.